Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for February 2014. I'm Neil Orford and this is the wrap-up of the literature that caught our eye in the last month. So let's start with an article in JAMA, Patterns and Outcomes of Red Blood Cell Transfusion in Patients Undergoing Percutaneous Coronary Intervention. Now this retrospective analysis of over 2 million patients receiving a blood transfusion while they were hospitalized for a percutaneous coronary intervention in the US is not what you might normally think we would include in Journal Club, but it caught our interest because of a couple of reasons. Firstly, they reported a wide variation in practice. So that is the overall transfusion rate for patients having a PCI in the US was 2.14% with risk standardized rates of transfusion across the hospitals ranging from 0.3 to 9.3%. So it looks like everything's doing something a little different. Um, Then they reported on outcomes. So transfused patients were more likely to have an infarct, that was 4.5% versus 1.8% with an odds ratio of 2.6, a stroke, 2% 2% versus 0.2% with an odds ratio of 7.72 or in hospital death with 12.5 versus 1.2%. They were unable to identify a clear transfusion trigger, that is a point at which people did better if they had a transfusion, although there was a group in whom transfusion was associated with better outcome, and that is bleeding patients with a haemoglobin of less than 10 grams per deciliter. Now the authors point out that the previous MINT, CRIT and FOCUS trials all offered conflicting evidence, and that this trial is retrospective but it's very large, but still The variation in practice, the suggestion that there are worse outcomes in patients getting transfusion perhaps provides enough impetus to warrant a large RCT that is needed to establish the best approach. Now if this happened it would have impacts on critically ill patients with ischemic heart disease or undergoing PCIs during their critical illness. The next study we'll look at in critical care medicine is evaluating the efficacy and safety of two doses of the polyclonal anti-tumor necrosis factor fragment antibody AZD9773 in adult patients with severe sepsis and or septic shock. This randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, international, multi-center, phase 2b trial randomized 300 patients to placebo or to two different dosing regimes of AZD9773 in patients within 24 hours of severe sepsis or septic shock. Now AZD9773 is a sheep derived polyclonal fab fragment combination that acts as a TNF alpha blocker and leads to reduced TNF-alpha levels and decreases in downstream pro-inflammatory cytokines, particularly interleukin-6 and interleukin-8. So in this study, they reported no difference in the primary outcome, which was ventilator-free days, no difference in 28-day mortality, no real difference in the organ failure endpoints, and a decrease in TNF-alpha with the study drug, but to their surprise, no 
decrease in IL-6 or IL-8. And there are no difference in these subgroups. So the authors point out that they may be underpowered to detect differences in mortality or other endpoints. They discussed that it was surprising that there were no decreases in IL-6 and IL-8 despite the decreases in TNF-alpha. And they conclude that although it's a negative trial, harm or benefit cannot be ruled out because of power issues. So even with all that in mind, it is difficult to feel that there will be a lot of enthusiasm for a larger RCT, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Okay, well the third study we're going to look at um, is more of an opinion piece, I guess, um, in intensive care medicine by Singer, Doig and Pritchard, all experts in nutrition and intensive care. So this is called The Truth About Nutrition in the ICU, and it's a good read for anyone who wants to just get their head around ICU nutrition. So this viewpoint paper aims to provide some up-to-date truths about ICU nutrition. A summary of their suggestions is as follows, and this is a summary and not their exact words. Firstly, early enteral nutrition within 24 hours is recommended, as there is an associated reduction in infectious complications and maybe a mortality benefit. Secondly, avoid overnutrition, that is, don't exceed 35 kilocalories per kilo per day, targeted to a BMI of 21 to 23 kilograms per meter squared, as this can cause possible harm. Okay, so less than 35 kilocalories per kilo per day. Thirdly, energy need equations are often inaccurate. So unless you're doing an indirect calorimetry, they suggest you follow the S-Pen recommendations of 20 to 25 kilocalories per kilo per day while they're unstable, and 25 to 30 when stable. Fourthly, the timing of optimal PN is uncertain. So the supplemental early PN studies are contradictory due to design differences. Adequate enteral nutrition meets the needs of most ICU patients, so PN should be limited to those who fail EN. It shouldn't be given to patients with an ICU length of stay less than four days, um, or those who are about to resume enteral intake. Fifthly, Give protein in early multi-organ failure to fight anabolic resistance with enough energy to avoid proteolysis. And they say 1.5 grams per kilo per day. Sixth, glutamine. It is recommended for PN patients who don't have multi-organ failure and are expected to require PN for greater than 10 days. It is not recommended for multi-organ failure patients as the redox study reported an increase in mortality. Seventh, selenium IV and sepsis maybe is associated with a decrease in mortality. Eighth, fish oils enterally and ARDS improved PF ratios and decreased ventilation duration, but this wasn't supported in larger doses or boluses, and intravenous might be beneficial post-op, so we're getting a bit wobbly here. Next, aim for conventional glucose control, not tight glucose control. And finally, don't measure gastric residual volumes. Uh, and if you can't help yourself, use 500ml as the cutoff and return it to the patient. So you might have different views, but that was the opinion in this viewpoint. Okay, moving back to JAMA. Critically ill patients with influenza H1N1 PDM09 virus infection in 2014. 
Again, this is a viewpoint published by Napolitano, Angus and Uyeki. And it's a perspective on the recent North American winter experience with H1N1, and they've had a pretty bad time. So what do they tell us? Firstly, 60% of hospitalised flu and deaths in under 65-year-olds was H1N1. Most with H1N1 are not critically ill, but those who become critically ill deteriorate quickly after four to five days, and it's characterised by shock, hypoxia and multi-organ dysfunction. 60% of patients requiring non-invasive ventilation progress to intubation, so that's obviously a concern. Many then progress to ARDS. Corticosteroids may prolong viral replication, therefore should be avoided. Secondary staph and strep infections occur, so early empirical broad-spectrum antibiotics should be given and de-escalated when at lower respiratory tract aspirates are culture negative. Use protective ventilation strategies, then consider escalation to ECMO, prone, neuromuscular blockade, recruitment, nitric, whatever you do. Um, all require expertise, and so consider referral to a centre that has it. Remember supportive care. Rhabdomolysis occurs in this disease. Test with lower respiratory tract PCR, as upper respiratory tract swabs may be negative. And remember, that was something we learned in the 2009 H1N1 epidemic. Give oseltamivir, although there is no robust evidence, and consider using repeat PCR sampling to establish the optimal duration. Consider IV zanamivir if you can't deliver enteral oseltamivir. And then maintain strict prevention strategies at work to protect your staff. So this is really a what-to-do list for an H1N1 epidemic affecting your intensive care. Okay, let's move on to prevalence, risk factors and mortality for ventilator-associated pneumonia in middle-aged, old and very old critically ill patients. This was published in Critical Care Medicine as part of the European VAP study. So modern ICU is facing the challenge of nosocomial infections and an ageing population. This study describes what happens when they are put together. So this secondary analysis of a multi-centre prospective cohort study examines the epidemiology and outcomes of VAP associated with age in patients ventilated for 48 hours or greater. They report that middle-aged, which is 45 to 64 years, the VAP incidence was 14.6%, the prevalence 13.7 per thousand days, mortality 35%. Old, which was 65 to 74 years, the VAP incidence was 17%, prevalence 16.6 per thousand days, mortality 51%, and very old, which they defined as over 75 years, the incidence was 12.8%, prevalence 13 per thousand days, and the mortality 51% again. So after multivariate analysis, they report that VAP was not more common as age increased, but the associated mortality was higher. In addition, in older patients, new temperature was less common and Enterobacter was more common. So what does that tell us? I guess that VAP isn't more common as you get older, but if you do get it, the mortality is higher um, and also that older patients may not manifest symptoms of it like temperature as clearly. 
another VAP article uh, in critical care medicine called When Policy Gets It Right, Variability in U.S. Hospitals Diagnosis of Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia. Now, you may remember that last year a new definition of VAF was made public by the CDC due to problems in the previous definition that resulted in substantial variability. The new definition was relabeled ventilator-associated events, which included ventilator-associated condition, infection-related ventilator-associated complication, or IVAC, possible pneumonia, and probable pneumonia. And there are definitions of these uh, on the website, uh, although it's a little confusing and a little hard to remember. This prospective survey of 43 US hospitals reports the agreement among hospitals about the classification of case vignettes as VAP or not VAP. And what they report is that the agreement is nearly random using the old VAP criteria, or in their words, enough to render comparisons between hospitals worthless. Of greater concern was the finding that rural centres were more likely to diagnose VAP and that this could lead to systematic bias against rural hospitals if resources are allocated using the old VAP definition as a KPI, and that is the case. So if you accept the findings of this study, it tells us that the old VAP criteria is worthless and that making decisions about hospital resources or performance using it isn't reasonable. What it doesn't tell us is, is the new definition any better? Okay, going on to the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, we have rapidly reversible sedation-related delirium versus persistent delirium in the ICU. This 102-patient prospective observational study describes different outcomes in ventilated adult critically ill patients associated with the type of delirium they have. So patients were characterized by independent assessors using CAM-ICU before and after daily sedation cessation. And they were characterized as no delirium, rapidly reversible sedation-related delirium, and this meant that it had to be present for less than two hours after sedation was ceased, or persistent delirium, which is present for greater than two hours. And then finally there was mixed delirium. They report that there was no difference at baseline between the groups other than a lower Apache score in the no delirium group. There was no difference in the sedation administered between the groups. Subjects were 10 times more likely to be assessed as having delirium if the assessment occurred before the cessation of sedation than after. 90% of subjects had at least one day of delirium and Persistent delirium had worse outcomes, so a higher proportion died or were discharged to a hospice, had a higher one-year mortality than the rapidly reversible group or the no delirium group. So what does this tell us? Well, firstly, this idea of rapidly reversible sedation-related delirium seems reasonable in that it does identify a group with better outcomes. Secondly, that um, it's better to have rapidly reversible sedation-related delirium than persistent delirium. I guess finally, that assessing delirium after the cessation of sedation provides a better chance of identifying a group who have rapidly reversible delirium um, and better outcomes rather than making the assessment before you stop sedation. So it's food for thought. 
Okay, continuing on with the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, we have the BALTI trial, which is Beta Agonist Lung Injury Trial. So the potential of benefit or of inhaler IV beta agonists in ALI, ARDS, is controversial, with the recent BALTI-2 and ALTA studies showing no benefit or harm. This prospective RCT performed in the UK randomised 362 patients undergoing esophagectomy to beta agonists, which were salmeterol 100 mics BD, versus placebo. The study drug was commenced two hours prior to surgery and continued for 72 hours. They report no difference in ALI ARDS development, that was 19.2% with salmeterol versus 16% with placebo. No difference in organ failure, survival or health-related quality of life. A decrease in adverse events with salmeterol due to a decrease in pneumonia. And a decrease in alveolar inflammatory markers with salmeterol. So overall, salmeterol was not clinically beneficial with some evidence of inflammatory benefit. So either salmeterol is ineffective or it may be effective at reducing ALI-ARDS in at-risk patients, but the dose, duration, timing, or typing of patients are not adequately understood. So I think there is probably a bit more work to be done in this area. Okay, the next study uh, in critical care medicine, macrolides and mortality in critically ill patients with community-acquired pneumonia, a systematic review and meta-analysis. So we don't put too many systematic reviews in Critique Journal Club, but this one is of interest because of the recent interest in macrolides generated by the evidence suggesting increased cardiovascular risk versus the suggestion that outcomes in community-acquired pneumonia may be improved by the immunomodulatory effects. And we're left wondering what the best thing to do is. So this meta-analysis, they ended up looking at 28 observational cohort studies with 9,850 critically ill patients with community-acquired pneumonia. They report a marginally significant outcome benefit in patients treated with macrolide combination therapy as their first line versus those with non-macrolide combination therapy, a risk ratio of 0.82 with 95% confidence intervals 0.71 to 1. This wasn't consistent across subgroups, but when adjusted risk estimates were pooled, there was a 25% relative mortality reduction with macrolides. So in the absence of RCTs, this meta-analysis suggests macrolide combination therapy as a first-line treatment in severe community-acquired pneumonia is beneficial. Okay, back to JAMA, the CATIS investigators. Effects of immediate blood pressure reduction on death and major disability in patients with acute ischemic stroke. So this is a stroke trial. This large 2038 patient RCT of, a pa of patients with acute ischemic stroke, randomised patients to early blood pressure control, which is less than 140 or 90, versus discontinuation of antihypertensives unless severe hypertension occurred. They achieved significant treatment separation of 8.2 millimetres of mercury systolic blood pressure within 24 hours, which was sustained for two weeks. There was no difference in outcome. And this suggests that the management of blood pressure from 12 hours post-stroke to two weeks may not be overly important. Now the caveats are it's Chinese population who are young with a high prevalence of smoking and possibly other epidemiological features that may not be transferable to other populations. 
The question of best blood pressure management in the first few hours after ischemic stroke isn't addressed by this study. And I guess there are two ways to interpret this study. The first is that you don't need to control blood pressure from 12 hours to two weeks. The second is that if trials that look at the early control of blood pressure show benefit, this study also suggests that continuing that control for the first two weeks doesn't cause harm. Lastly, in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, we have a perspective article on accepting brain death. So this takes us through the two recent US high-profile cases in California and Texas, and they offer opposite problems. The California case revolved around a family's non-acceptance of brain death despite multiple neurological examinations. After a court order to allow discontinuation of ventilation, the deceased was transferred to an undisclosed location where ventilatory support was continued and nutritional support added. The Texas case revolved around a family seeking a court order to allow a pregnant, brain-dead woman to have her life support discontinued. The hospital wasn't prepared to do so, as Texas law requires support not to be terminated where the patient is pregnant. The court declared her dead and support was ceased. This highlights the problems we have as a society with brain death. The authors trace the origin back to the 1968 article arguing for the extension of the definition of death to include irreversible coma, the extension of this to a philosophical definition in the 1980s, to the entrenched legal and ethical definitions we currently have and the debate that has surrounded this area during this time. The authors go on to discuss the difficulties that occur in a society tolerant of an individual's values and views, in particular when to discontinue ventilatory support in a patient declared legally dead when the family refuse. The problem of defining the death process as a moment when there is gradual death of different parts of the body at different times is sharply focused by this area. They conclude with the following. The determination of death is a highly significant social boundary. It determines who is recognised as a person with constitutional rights, who deserves legal entitlements and benefits, and when last wills and testaments become effective. The law and ethics have long recognised that deferring to medical expertise regarding the diagnosis of brain death is the most reasonable way to manage the process of dying. Nothing in these two cases ought to change that stance. So a very thought-provoking article. So that's it for Journal Club February 2014 for Critique. Come to the website and have a look around or read the articles for yourself. Either way, we'll see you next month.